So tonight we come together to practice on the half moon night. We use the convention of the lunar cycle <clears throat> to help us measure time. We have the half moon and the full moon and the new moon. Next week will also be another measurement of time, the occasion of uh, the day we remember Lumpur Cha's birthday, even though he passed away 20 years ago. We still remember his birthday, and there's a gathering of the abbots in Thailand on that day. So time, we come together now just to review our practice because time passes by waiting for nobody. It's a skillful means to review one's practice how our practice is going, what the purpose of the practice is, how to do it, the method. Sometimes they compare the practice to the job of bringing down a large forest tree and to bring down or completely uproot a large forest tree takes a lot of energy, a lot of effort because that tree has roots underground has its base and then it has the trunk the branches and then the twigs to just go hard at uprooting it from the base. A difficult task. And this is like uprooting avicca, the ignorance and delusion underlying the arising of kilesa which affect our mind, the cause of suffering. To uproot all the kalesa in one go would be a tall order. So they recommend working where you can work first. So you work with the twigs, the foliage, the branches, which is more practical and then you work down towards the trunk then down to the base and eventually uproot the whole tree. <coughs> so in our practice we tend to work from the outside in, going in because we can't uproot greed, anger and delusion in one go. We work from the outside in working with our sila, external conduct 
precepts and the ways of practice, the ways of monastic training. We work at that and that's already cutting off small amounts of defilement and wrong thinking, wrong behavior which causes suffering. You're learning to let go of things little by little, like working with the twigs and the leaves and the branches until the mind is ready and then maybe can completely uproot the tree. Because we'll see in the course of our practice on a daily basis, some days the mind is more peaceful. Meditation might seem to go well. Other days the mind is not peaceful, not much mindfulness, not much samadhi. And you might say practice is not going so well. And that's the same for everybody with meditation. There's ups and downs, it's not very even. But there's always something we can do, learning to let go whatever it is that maybe is agitating us. Let go of um, negative ways of thinking, negative emotions, unskillful speech, unskillful behavior and so on. Learning to develop more mindfulness in our speech, our actions, and this helps to support the mind turning inwards to let go of the roots, root causes of our suffering. So Lumpur Cha, he emphasized the use of wisdom in the practice for both for developing samadhi and then for developing the insight that will help us f free our minds from suffering. Even just to keep the precepts, Lumpur used to say, you need wisdom. So at every stage, every step of the practice, the method that we use is one of using wisdom, developing wise reflection training the mind in wisdom, even to the very highest level of the practice. You know, we often have doubts about who is it who attains uh, the path, the stream, who is it attains Nibbana, <coughs> and so on. Who is it who lets go of Kilesa if everything is not self? is anatal and who does all that? Well, it's panya, wisdom, that does all that. But panya is not a person, it's not a being, a self. It's a faculty of mind that we train and mature and develop. And the more we develop wisdom, the more this brings up all the other qualities in the practice that are needed to finally uproot the tree of suffering. There's wisdom that does the job. Wisdom guides our practice. Wisdom trains body, speech and mind. And on the highest level, well, there is no person behind that wisdom. 
wisdom is just wisdom, it's panya. But in the beginning we need to develop wisdom, so we read and listen to Dhamma and then think about Dhamma and try to apply it in our daily lives to ourselves, to our situation, to what's going on. Whether it's in developing sila and keeping sila, we use wisdom. Developing samadhi, we use wisdom. And then obviously developing insight, we're training in wisdom. It takes wisdom to see that samadhi won't just arise by itself. It needs supporting conditions. It needs nourishment. It needs all kinds of wholesome dhammas skillful means for the mind to become clear and calm and still in samadhi. And for insight to arise, we need supporting conditions. We need wisdom to see that. So wisdom sees how the practice, or the aspects, the different factors of the practice support each other and work together Wisdom sees the value of samadhi. Say as our practice progresses and we find there are those periods where mindfulness drops a bit, the mind is not so peaceful, samadhi is not so strong. Wisdom tells us, well, we need to also put effort into nourishing the practice through wholesome, skillful means. So we have these terms like making merit or making barami. That covers so many aspects of life, but it's referring to this training the mind in wholesome, skillful dhammas, which will gradually support the arising of deeper, peaceful states of mind, which support the arising of deeper insight. But even when your samadhi is not good, your mindfulness seems a bit weak. There's always merit to be made, wholesome dhammas to be developed. There's dana to be done, precepts and virtuous behavior to be uh, performed, conducted, acted upon. There's many ways we do good in our daily lives which support the arising of peaceful mind states. So in the monastery we have the practice of the routine and the ways of training ourselves and the kind of virtues that we're encouraging to support wholesome states of mind in the development of the Brahma-viharas, the kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, development of gratitude, uh, respect towards others, gratitude to our teachers, gratitude to the laity who support us. Develop the virtues of uh, contentment, the contentment with the requisites, 
fewness of wishes, being easy to look after, they develop the virtues of energy as opposed to laziness, uh, being willing to put forth energy, whether it's in service for the community or in meditation or study, whichever area of our practice requires effort, energy, what they call wiriya rampa, persistent effort applied to the practice. This will lead to the overcoming of defilement, whether we're talking about just pruning those twigs and branches on the edge of the tree or the actual uprooting of the whole trunk requires wiriya, persistent and consistent effort applied to the practice. So just following the routine, helping out with the chores, learning to chant, all the different aspects of the practice require effort, require regular, constant effort. And that brings forth its result, brings many good, wholesome mind states come from those putting effort into the routine, into the practice. Learning the Vinaya and trying to practice the Vinaya in your, the way you speak, the way you act. Requires effort, but it brings forth many results, both subtle and very obvious. Learning to help help with the work around the monastery, the duties of a monastery and maintenance of monastery, looking after the different aspects of the monastery. This is all wholesome effort which brings forth its result, you know, shedding more negative states of mind, shedding more selfish ways, more indulgent ways. So using wisdom we see the value of all, the whole of the training for bringing forth states of, of peace, supporting meditation which will support deeper insight. Maybe for those who are more experienced in the practice then they might go on and do much more personal retreat time, really dedicate, because the mind is more peaceful, maybe dedicate a lot of time to formal practice of sitting and walking. But as we begin the practice we should also be honest and recognize maybe we can't sustain that very well, our effort and our peace of mind is patchy. So you put a lot of effort into these other aspects of the practice, in learning to keep the Vinaya, learning to follow the routine, learning to help out and so on. But over time that supports the arising of deeper states of peace, or supports the arising of mindfulness. So Ajahn Chah didn't just talk about Barikama uh, Pawana, just using a meditation object and just sort of hammering away with that over and over again. That might be appropriate at some stages in your practice at some times. But he always, always talked about how samadhi and panya work together and they're inseparable. He talked about the log of wood and one end is samatha, one end is panya. 
You pick up the log and both ends come up when you pick it up. And they are mutually supportive of each other. So he encouraged a lot of wise reflection in our daily practice, in reflecting on Dhamma to support the arising of mindfulness and for the mind to calm down, become more peaceful in itself. Investigating your moods, mood changes, different thoughts, emotional states, feelings that come up through your day. Not always just trying to turn to a meditation object to try and sort of, with willpower, just get away from your moods. Occasionally that works. But a lot of the time we have to use wisdom, contemplate things. But wisdom is always bringing a resolution. Wisdom isn't just sort of vaguely analyzing, maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that, and on and on it goes, it's sort of just ordinary thinking all over the place. True wisdom always brings the mind to a sense of resolution of its problem or its issue. This is why wisdom supports the arising of samadhi. You're clearing up whatever emotional state or mood is bothering you. Clearing up meaning you're bringing you to the point where you can resolve it, you can let it go, and the mind returns to a more peaceful state where mindfulness is functioning. So that's a skill, that's something we train in. We train in directing the mind wisely to our experience, our mental experience. We see how the mind tends towards either indulgence and attraction or aversion through its senses. We see forms, hear sounds, taste, smell, touch, and then we have memories and ideas. And it's being willing to investigate that process where, say, the eyes see a form and then there's some kind of reaction based on the feeling and the perception arising. There'll be some reaction and mood is stimulated, whether it's just momentary or maybe a very strong, long-lasting mood. But we're using wisdom to investigate that. So if you see a form, if it's an attractive form, holds your interest, stimulates your, your mind in that way, you're investigating that to see, well, how true, how real is that form and that reaction that you're having. So Ajahn Chah would say things like, well, you look at this hall, and it's supposed a hall we're sitting in. That's a form, your eyes see the form, then you have a perception and you start thinking. Maybe you think it's a very big hall, or you might think it's a medium-sized hall or just a small hall. Or you might think it's a beautiful, well-designed, well-built hall. Or you might think it's a very plain hall or not a very inspiring hall. But all of this is what we call samuti, conventional reality. It's just the label we put on to our experience of the eye seeing form. We have that perception and then we start thinking. That's where liking or disliking arises and a view is formed. That's samuti satya. He used to teach you can 
contemplate samuti and out of that contemplation you can transcend it or penetrate it and experience vimuti, which is liberation. Liberation from the conventional reality which normally occupies the mind and feeds our moods of liking, disliking. If you penetrate through the samuti, then you might just see, well, this hall, whether it's big or small, beautiful, plain, it's just the four elements brought together in a certain way by the skills of people. Earth, air, fire and water, brick and rock, and other substances brought together to make a building. The rest is what your mind adds on labeling it, making assumptions about it, but it's just the four elements. That's where you're breaking down samuti to see vimuti through the conventional reality which normally deludes us. You're just seeing the four elements in this hall and then the mind, if it really sees that, will let go of its reaction, whether it's Liking, disliking or indifference. Even indifference can be delusion, can't it? It can be dullness and delusion, not really knowing anything. Either way, using wisdom you break through the delusion of the conventional appearance of something, the label, the description you have in your mind. And you see vimuti, you just see the four elements. That's just one example. You can see all the time through our day, the conventional reality keeps popping up and feeding reactions of liking and disliking. <clears throat> Whether it's sort of inanimate animate objects like buildings and trees and mountains. <clears throat> Whether it's people you know, I like this person, I don't like that person. This person's interesting, this person's boring, this person is useful to me and somebody who can help me. This person is my enemy or somebody who gives me a hard time. That is all the conventional reality that we put on top of the four elements. A person is just a body made up of these four elements. Our own body it's just the four elements walking around the monastery. The mind tells it to do things, but what is doing those things? It's not a person, a being, me, myself. It's just a body. It's this kind of reflection that helps resolve moods, bring the mind back to stillness, quietness. You're investigating a little bit deeper our normal views and beliefs, our normal experience of the world. If we don't investigate, then we tend to be just on this level of attraction and aversion the whole time. I like this, I don't like that. I want this, I don't want that. This agrees with me, that doesn't agree with me. I'm happy, I'm sad, and so on. So wisdom is something we have to train in. We train in turning around as if stepping outside of 
ourselves and looking back at reality of what we're experiencing. Whether it's our interaction with other people or the world, just seeing, hearing things, tasting things, touching things, or just internally, our own internal thoughts, memories popping up. How do we deal with them as we're doing different activities in our day, whether we're on our own at our kuti, working, eating, where is your mind and what's happening? You're learning to turn around and investigate that as a way to resolve different moods and delusions that come up. The more we do this, the more it brings the mind to this quality of stillness which supports the arising of samadhi and wisdom, deepening of wisdom. You see, when you start to investigate things, it breaks down a lot of previously held opinions and views about things. We question that, we look a bit more deeply and see things that may be used to stir us up, you start to see, well, maybe it's not that important or that such a big thing in the mind. And so it brings a sort of resolution. The mind becomes more peaceful because of this investigation. We see more clearly what the mind is. We see the mind is one thing, the body is another. The world outside is one thing and so on body, feelings, mind, mind objects, we start to see them as they are rather than just grasping it all as a self and just believing and getting caught up into the self. This is what we call letting go of Sakaya Ditti, the view or the belief in a self where the mind takes ownership of everything. This is me, this is mine, myself. Whether it's the body, possessions, our own thoughts, our own feelings. It's that investigation of Dhamma based on turning around looking experience helps to separate it out using wisdom. And this wisdom is is gradually maturing our understanding of truth. So we're not constantly getting lost in things, worked up in things and suffering. So when the more wisdom comes up, naturally the experience, the result is that we feel less suffering, less agitation, worry, fear, anger, insecurity, less greed and selfishness, less wanting things, and the mind becomes more peaceful and content within itself. At first that can be just momentary, moments where you just let go by seeing something a little bit more with wisdom, you know, on a deeper level you see the truth of something so you let go and the mind becomes more peaceful just for a few moments. Or it can be over time be quite deep realizations which are forming in your mind and you're really changing the way you look at the world, the way you look at yourself, look at the world and you start to take more of a refuge in Dhamma than anything else. You know, no longer just taking what you read in a book or hear from another person, your past, your culture, your, the things around you, you know, those 
you understand all those things, but little by little you're actually taking refuge in your own internal wisdom that is developing and maturing through this process of insight and investigation of Dhamma. And this is how the first three fetters fade. They become weakened you know, under the constant vigilant presence of wisdom with mindfulness, breaking down delusions, wrong thinking, wrong beliefs and so on. It's looking more deeply at our experience and doubt about what is the path and what is the truth fades. Sort of the blind and fumbling attachment to external practices, thinking they'll somehow bring me enlightenment without a clear understanding of things that fades and then Sakaya Ditti just grasping at every belief every view and opinion you have starts to fade when the mind does become peaceful then we might experience some pity and sukha rising sometimes very deeply sometimes just momentarily so we have to investigate that as well, especially very strong periods. Say one's meditation is going particularly well and the mind becomes very concentrated. Pity and sukha might arise even for many hours, even for a whole day and a night perhaps. And that in itself can be deluding. We have to be aware well, that's still not uh, necessarily A self. It's something we have to look at as if this is a condition arising with the peaceful mind. If we don't do that, then we tend to just grasp at it and, and feel good because we do feel peaceful from pity and sukha, but then we may become complacent and think, well, this is all I need to do is just to attain this and do this. We might just want to, from then on, just to observe the mind in a very refined way no more contemplation of the body as not self or as a super you know, seeing it as a Nietzsche dukkha anatta I just want to contemplate the mind and the very refined states of mind that we might experience it's a very common experience for meditators when they have a lot of pity and sukha and just want to be with the mind very high and refined states of mind or even just the memories of that but Ajahn Chah always said if you do get to that point where the mind becomes very peaceful and with pity and sukha, it's the time to turn back to contemplate the body. Because that's the basis for this deep-rooted attachment and delusion of self, is this attachment to it between mind and body. This is going right down to the trunk of the tree. If we overlook that or neglect that, then again our wisdom will not develop to the highest level. So it's actually a practice in wisdom to go back and reflect on this coarse body that we have, even though sometimes we feel that the most refined wisdom must be just ref reflecting and observing the mind itself, the objects of mind. And that might be true in certain situations, but 
the way you really train wisdom is contemplating the body and the relationship between mind and body and see where does this mind grasp and identify with this body as a self, as my body. You're contemplating the nature of this body as impermanent, subject to change, ultimately something that is bound to degenerate with age and illness, it's bound to die. Contemplating the unattractive, unbeautiful side of the body, in the way we tend to always form attraction for our own bodies, for others in the mind. We identify with the visual image of a human body. We like that. We're used to it, we're familiar with it, and we seek pleasure in that. Seek pleasure in the bodies of others. But actually what makes the mind beautiful is seeing the truth about the body, the unattractive side, the fact that it is bound to get old, get sick, die. When it dies, it decomposes, goes back to the earth. It's not anything to really grasp at or hold on to. Nobody would wish to hold on to a corpse, even if it was the corpse of the most beautiful person in the world. You wouldn't want them once they're a corpse. You'd be willing to let them go then. And that's actually the nature of a human body. Its nature is to get old, to die. And this again is a training in wisdom to see that. And that wisdom actually brings beauty to the mind because it's the beauty of wholesome mind states based on mindfulness, wisdom and understanding. So at every stage of the practice we use wisdom, whether it's just in the dana we do, learning to help out, help out in the monastery, help others, be kind and respectful to others, keeping the sila, developing virtuous behavior so as to not make negative karma that comes back to cause of suffering or others suffering. Developing meditation, developing the samatha practice using the breath and using other meditation objects and then developing insights, reflecting on Dhamma. At every level we use wisdom, it's a quality that we develop and it's a quality that develops the whole path for us. It develops out of samaditi, right view, based on wisdom. And this has a maturing effect on the mind. They say in Thai, wisdom, panya, oprom, bom, nitsai. Nitsai is like your character. Oprom means to mature, to, to bring up, to develop. Bom actually can be used to meaning to bake. So it's mature as in mature like you bake a cake from, uh, say, a compound of yeast and water and flour, you add heat to it, becomes a cake. Or it's the word they use to mature or ripen fruit. So you might have an unripe banana which receives heat and then gradually ripens into an edible banana, for instance. 
wisdom, panya has that quality of ripening, maturing the mind, maturing our faculties, all the different aspects of the practice. And you see the result in the, the mind with wisdom naturally has Brahma-viharas, naturally understands metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. This is why they say the qualities of the Buddha, you know, Panya and Mahapanya, Mahakaruna and Parisuti. You know, these are the defining qualities of a Buddha because where there's wisdom there'll be compassion. If one has seen suffering, its cause, its end and the path that leads to the end of suffering for oneself, one will naturally start to see that in others. If one can see the way out of suffering for oneself and one wishes for that with wisdom seeing it's the most important thing in life is to end one's suffering, then one will also see that for others and wish that for others. So the quality of a wise enlightened being is naturally compassionate for others. It's just automatic. Where there is wisdom there is compassion. Usually you can say the same if somebody is lacking compassion for others, lacking kindness, and then they're also lacking wisdom. Because it must mean that they haven't developed the qualities, they haven't developed the qualities to overcome their own suffering either. So where there's wisdom, there's compassion. And once the more one wisdom develops in the practice, then the more one's ability to support others in the practice, help others out of their suffering, that grows. And so that's why Buddha is the most beneficial being to arise in the world, giving the path of ultimate wisdom to complete liberation, vimuti, and nothing more beneficial for human beings than to hear and understand that path from a Buddha or from the disciples of a Buddha. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.